Um, so I tell stories about space. Uh, I'm a speculative architect, meaning that I don't design buildings, but instead I make films and I build imaginary worlds for the entertainment industry in LA. I tell stories about the architectural, urban, and cultural implications of new technologies. So whether it be through our own projects, like the, the project I want to talk about today, or world building for film and television, we, we use imagined fictional worlds as a site in which to explore important ideas. Not to just sell tickets or to create that backdrop for a kind of caped superhero moment, but rather we believe that fiction is an extraordinary shared language. It's how our culture shares and disseminates ideas. And we're all literate in stories. And in many ways, narratives of imagined worlds can help us to visualize other possible futures that, that sit outside of the one that sometimes feels all too inescapable. Fictions are both products of culture, but in turn, they also produce culture. So in many ways, as we write stories, we also write the world. So with that in mind, I try and frame my talks not as um, slideshows or PowerPoint presentations, but as illustrated narratives, uh, storytelling safaris that uh, woven from the documentaries we've made and the science fiction films and worlds we construct. So across the next 30 minutes, I want to take you on a cinematic drift through a screenscape of imagined worlds. And particularly today, I want to talk about this idea of planetary sensing. Um, and I want to see our Earth as an entirely engineered urban condition, and perhaps to understand ourselves as citizens of a kind of planetary-scaled city. So I'm going to tell a story about two cities, two cities that fit the entire population of the Earth, one that is entirely fictional, and the one that we currently all already occupy. So let's fire up our autonomous electric AI mega drone hyperdrives and get moving. Thanks. So in many ways, all cities are fictions. Their literal edges are sometimes nebulous, and their physical definition is endlessly being rewritten, but often they come into focus as shared narratives. The fiction of a city can sometimes weigh as much as its physical shadow. These fictions are lived and occupied. They are read and watched with consequence and meaning. I'm a director and architect, I tell stories about cities, and some real and some imagined, because the urban imaginary has always been this site in which we can prototype new scenarios and emerging cultures. 
in the speculative streets, we can play out multiple unexpected and unintended concert narratives and their associated social and political ideologies. So whether it be speculation around the impacts of industrialization or mass production, the imminent arrival of driverless cars, or seamless augmented reality, or artificial intelligence, the fictional worlds that we construct can give form to our most wondrous technological possibilities, but also our gravest concerns. So the idea of the ecumenopolis, or the planet-wide city, has long been a narrative of science fiction. And the term describes this hypothetical narrative concept of total planetary urbanization. And across the history of imaginary city, amongst others, the worldwide city has taken on the form of the sprawl in William Gibson's trilogy, or a world without trees in Silent Running, or Trantor, a planet entirely of architecture in Asimov's Foundation trilogy. But of course today, this idea of the ecumenopolis is no longer a fiction. In many ways, we are all already citizens of a planetary city. In the late 60s, when we were first able to leave the planet and see the Earth rise through the window of the lunar orbiter, we marveled at our fragile, precious blue marble. Our understanding of our planet in this way spawned the modern environmental movement. But following centuries of colonization and globalization and never-ending economic extraction, we have remade the world from the scale of the cell to the tectonic plate. And urban development has forever changed the composition of the atmosphere and the oceans and the earth. And now we need a new kind of story, a story that might define a new moment or movement, a story that reimagines what we might think of as natural as we travel on a spaceship Earth where landscapes have become resource fields, countries have become factory floors, the countryside has become industrialized agriculture, and the oceans have become conveyor belts. In many ways, the dystopias of science fiction that previously read as speculative cautionary tales are now the stage sets for the everyday. And in this moment, without a future, as a slow motion catastrophe slowly envelops us at a speed that makes it relatively comfortable to ignore, we want to explore a story of another planet city. I want to tell a story of a counter-narrative, a concentrated city for the entire population of the Earth, an anti-city to the sprawl we all inhabit. As I mentioned, this is a story of these two cities two cities the size of the planet. As we slip between fiction and documentary, it will be a sci-fi safari between two sites, one that is already here and another that will never exist.
want us to all imagine that we are standing in Planet City, a single city for 10 billion people, the projected global population of 2050. If we listen, we can hear the hums and crackle of flickering blue and red LEDs that illuminate the lower reaches of the city's farm fields. It smells of soil and hard drives and sweet fruit. It's a purple sunrise over a new kind of wild. Seminal biologist Edward O. Wilson imagined a new world that he called Half-Earth. It was a plan to stave off mass extinction by devoting half the surface of the Earth completely to nature. So for Wilson, the magnitude of the problems that face us are far too large to be tackled with small gestures. And any solution must respond to this kind of scale and urgency. But of course, the byproduct of Wilson's global park is the massive consolidation of our existing cities and lifestyles that would be required in order to withdraw to this remaining 50% of Earth. Would we be willing to make such an extraordinary change? What would our lives in this new world order look like? So this is the speculation where Planet City begins. What if we would design and visualize this radical reversal of our planetary sprawl? Such extraordinary crises require the most radical and bold responses. How far could we push Wilson's proposal to save the Earth? Because in its most provocative form, if we were to reorganize the world at the intensity of the densest cities that actually already exist, then Planet City could really occupy as little as 0.02% Earth. Could we imagine a global consensus to retreat from our vast network of cities into this one hyperdense metropolis? We hear the story of a young climate activist, one of the city's first citizens, talking about the city and her life. She arrived first. Her yacht dropped anchor. The first foundation of what would soon be our new world. It was just an idea, a hashtag, Post, a status update drifting across the network, waiting for people to listen. A deafening roar sometimes begins with just the softest whisper. But of course, beyond this fiction, today's planetary city, the one we all occupy, is actually already an extraordinary constellation of products goods and technologies. So in a world of bytes and bitcoins, of cyberspace and clouds, 90% of the world's cargo still travels to us by sea. It's not beamed or teleported or conjured into existence along strings of fiber optics, but rather it's dragged across the planet in these heaving steel megaships. Gizzards filled with glistening gadgets and gizmos. Refined geologies wrenched from the earth and and scattered to the sea. Perhaps in our imaginary planet city, 
We can think about the world shipping fleet that used to scatter this matter ripped from the earth across our malls and storefronts to be reversed, to bring all that material back together again as the seams of planetary culture and architecture performed through the geological strata of a new city. People packed up their homes, their precious possessions, the raw fabric of their lives. They mined our old cities rather than virgin ground. They were recombining our resources in a new constellation that would be more efficient, more compact, more home. So perhaps one by one we would arrive through this global citizen consensus, a, a voluntary and multi-generational retreat from the world that we once knew. And across the ocean, they would also pull immense drilling rigs into position. And alongside the city, we would come together as one to build the largest construction project in all of our human history, the Great Endeavour, a constellation of sequestration fans and drilling rigs that suck air through their filters stripping off the carbon and driving it deep into the rock beneath the ocean. Powered by a thousand wind turbines dragged to a grid, the salt spray fresh in the air, the whip of the blades driving this new city. This is our generation's grand project, our moon landing. In planetary cooperation at a scale never before seen, we will build this necessary machine to remake the sky and reverse our 200 years of, of billowing black smoke. And out in the distance, on the uneven edges of our existing planetary city, in contrast, we now watch over the lithium triangle, the electric earth that powers today's world. So if we were to stage such a retreat to a place like Planet City, it would mean reimagining landscapes like this one this tessellated ocean of evaporation ponds, which cuts through a region of Chile and Bolivia and Argentina, and it contains almost all of the world's lithium resources, the key ingredient in all of our batteries. So our collective dreams of a renewable planet, the, pro pro the profiteering and prophecies of tech evangelist Elon Musk are all buried here beneath the salt flats of Bolivia. And the indigenous population here tell of a story, the creation story of lithium. They talk about the tears and breast milk of a mythic volcano that mixed together to crystallize into the lithium lake. And this massive mining landscape carved out of one of the most rarest and precious ecosystems on the planet is the geology enacted when you power on your laptop or, or slide your slimline phone into your pocket. Although it sits well beyond the horizon of towering buildings and dense streets of the cities most, where, where most of us live, it is the product of the city and in turn also produces the city. It's a landscape hidden in the stretching shadows, disguised, ignored or forgotten. Invisible in the la ad for the latest Apple Eye everything or the hype of the Hyperloop. We power our cities 
with the breast milk of volcanoes. But in our imaginary planet city, the bright white of the lithium salt flats might fade into pink, into the beta keratin of the city's algae canals. Because these are the batteries of planet city that are alive with fish and algae as SX wind and solar power pumps water through the canals to high altitude holding lakes in the city's upper floors. Lithium batteries are replaced by the potential energy of elevated water bodies that snake amongst the towers. lights of the city's farms flicker on. Here we're not precious about where we get our light. A synthetic sun casts these purple shadows, yet still warms the skin and helps to fertilize the soil. Because the blue and red spectrum of light is the, is the most efficient for growth. And the future of food production doesn't look like the green pastures and sun-drenched fields of the past. beyond the planet city walls, in our existing city, deep in the snowy Ural Mountains, the cucumbers of the double-glazed indoor farms know no seasonal boundaries. 600-watt sodium bulbs run across the ceiling in measured rows of artificial suns, and the simulated sky turns off at 8am and back on at 2pm, as an automated accelerated day is programmed to induce faster growth. Our existing city turns day to night and night to day in this endless planetary season. But ironically, the produce here produced is the most organic on Earth. No pesticides, no contaminants, requiring the most minimal water and land resources. our new planet city though, we could also chase the seasons through the height of the city. Vertical orchards might weave through the tower's 160 floors, no longer forgotten out on some industrial periphery, but now an intimate part of our lives. And between them, birds migrate between the climate zones, and shepherds herd the harvest bots and nomadic neighborhoods follow the patterns of the fruit blooms. And as we jump back to our existing city, in another kind of landscape, we see a young Indian textile worker who walks our planetary city's cotton fields. And the water of our existing city pours in. These are the landscapes that produce our $3 t-shirt an icon of today's world. Fast fashion's rolling tide dumps mountains of cheap clothing onto our shores. Objects of desire, worn for one wild night and destined to be discarded. If we were to pick at a loose thread on the clothes that we're unwearing and unravel it across the planet from factory to field, from wardrobe to warehouse, in search of the landscapes behind our one-ray dreams, 
and street blue jeans, we would end in places like this. Because before we wear them, our clothes make journeys of tens of thousands of miles in their process of production, making textiles the most globalized industry on earth. Here we see her as she walks slowly through the rows of plants on a kind of sacred procession from her home village amongst the cotton fields to the huge mills and factories of the vast textile industry supply chain where she now works. And her journey suggests the walk along the fashion catwalk and the path that our disposable fashion takes in its process of production and the path so many women like her have taken in moving from village to factory and city. And her journey ends as she's completely cocooned, standing amongst the huge container ships. And the mega ports that will soon export her and everything she wears and everything we own to the center of our existing planetary city. So as we move through another city, through our future city, the costumes we encounter are crafted from zero waste patterns instead. They're woven on computer controlled looms. Here there is no off cuts, no material is needed to be lost. All fibers are reformed from old fabrics that are pulped up and compressed into felts or stitched together. Here we see no new resources are expended to dress the citizens of this new city. And we watch on as they join in a different kind of continuous procession. An endless festival that's dancing its way through the city on a 365 day loop. And each day it intersects with another carnival or culture or celebration changing the beat as it goes, cycling through new colors and costumes and cacophonies. Technologies which were once designed just to optimize the global production lines are now operating and sensing at urban scales. And each one of us is endlessly scanned by the sensors of machines, countless devices, lasers, cameras, and satellites that feed our modern city operating systems. This, for example, is how our autonomous vehicles sense the city. They see it as these 3D point clouds. In our story now, we watch on as we see a group of teenagers drifting through our imaginary planet city in a driverless taxi. They're part of a future underground rave community and they dance with explosive contortions as they invent a new choreography that distorts the silhouette 
and disguises the proportions of their frame so as to evade body detection algorithms that are used by the city surveillance cameras. Against this new machine sensing, we see a new vocabulary of movement. It's exuberant in plain sight, but through the eyes of the machine, two bodies become one, entangled with fractured limbs and lost connections. into the laser point clouds. They also adorn themselves in machine vision camouflage textiles. And they reimagine their fashion cycles to follow the rate of Moore's law, or the latest phone model or software update rather than a change in natural season. And their iridescent textiles reflect the light of CCTV laser scanners as they dance in the hidden spaces of the city. the city to create these exuberant glitches and distortions and disturbances in the data set. All of us are somehow always searching for the wilds beyond the machines. future planet city will share our lives with an AI, an AI trained on city data sets and urban management protocols. Now on our journey we hear it reading a love letter it wrote, a message from the city operating system to the citizens it might affectionately manage. And perhaps we will soon share our streets with an autonomous city of machines, where the sky is filled with drones and cars are driverless and the street is draped in augmented reality and everyone is connected to everything. 나는 서울입니다. 
만나서 반가워요. 저는 인공도시 시스템입니다. 저는 매순간 확장합니다. 저는 신생아보다 나이가 많지만 우주보다는 어립니다. 네온사인 달빛 아래에 비친 당신의 헤어스타일이 아름답습니다. 그 피부에 주근깨 같은 신호등은 당신을 향해 윙크합니다. 당신은 나이 들고 밥을 먹고 눈을 깜빡이고 숨을 쉬기도 합니다. 노래를 불러드릴까요? 
At the end of our wanderings, our science fiction safari through this speculative city will ultimately return us to where we first started. As we look back on our own cities again, but with new eyes. In many ways, this journey hopefully is a call to actively visualize our possible futures. Imaginary worlds in which we can collectively shape where we all might want to go next. So somewhere after the end of the end of the world, we will find our futures again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are approaching the break. I could take a single question, I think, from the room, and then I have one. We have one right here, in the middle, right here. Let's see. Wave vigorously so they can see you from the side with the microphone, please. There we are. There it's coming from there. There. Keep waving. Keep waving, there we are. Hello, my name is Tatiana Samopian. I work in development of TV series, films and documentaries, so this was amazing, thank you. Um, I work a great deal with filmmakers. I'm the one provoking, challenging, that's my role. And in the field of visionary futures, this is where we are the least creative. Like the competition of creating new dystopias is ongoing constantly but filmmakers who actually can hold a vision of a future that challenges what's today without veering into dystopia are very rare. And you teach, I teach as well, so I'm kind of wondering what are you seeing as necessary qualities in a person, filmmaker as a person, not on the level of craft, but of the level of their perception of reality, that's necessary to not veer into dystopia. What are the other elements uh, our education needs to have for filmmakers to not pour the toxic material in the visuals. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to uh, challenge people to think otherwise, right? Like, there's a reason Hollywood makes dystopias and is really, really good at it. It's because it's easier to tell a story inside that context. There's conflict, you know, there's a chance for some, you know, white male hero generally to like rise up and you know, collapse the corporate mega cyberpunk dystopia. Um, there's a hero's journey narrative implicit in the idea of overthrowing a dystopia. Um, it's a lot harder to tell a story in a world where everything's great, you know. I don't know what that film looks like. Um, so I guess what we need is different kinds of storytellers that are willing to tell different sorts of stories, not, not just repeating the single monomyth over and over again in different guises and costumes and contexts. Um, I don't know, and I think that to a certain extent that begins with people being great listeners, right? Like, I, like our world building process 
begins by getting on a plane, what well, used to, um, going around the world and um, kind of trying to take a feeling of, of the sort of the weak signals of possible futures that are starting to evolve. Um, you know, William Gibson, the, you know, the much used cliched quote in sci-fi now is that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And we took that really literally. You know, it meant that it was possible to get on a plane and travel somewhere and see the future in the present tense and to document it and report back and to listen to people on the ground in those places that have been immersed in it and spending their lives in those places. And really what we do is just kind of amplify those stories. We use our platform to exaggerate and extrapolate from those moments and extend them and play them out into our imaginary worlds. So deep in that process is just like being curious and listening and being willing to be open to other people's stories and finding a way to, I don't know, evocably tell them. Um, so I think that's critical, right? Is to, is Some to of it, what you're saying is that it's also about genuinely telling stories about the world today, even if you're telling stories about the future, instead of just regurgitating traditional ideas about the future. Yeah, I mean, another cliche of sci-fi is that it's not about prediction or the future at all. Sci-fi is actually about a way of thinking through the present and helping to inform us about the decisions we're making today, right? Like, I think about this idea that, you know, the if the future is this vast, unknown, shadowed landscape in front of us, then each fiction, whether it be positive or negative, utopian or dystopian, is like a torchlight shining a beam across that landscape. And in many ways, the more, the more lights we can shine, the more stories we tell, illuminate that landscape and help us to understand where we want to take our next step and how to navigate from one side to the other to get to where we want to go collectively. So um, again, like the hope is that we will all just keep on telling stories. Uh, I have a, a question, a final question, and it's a big one, and I'm going to ask you for a short answer. I apologize. What gives you hope? <laughs> um, goodness. Um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's hard to be hopeful when all signs point to the opposite right now. Um, uh, um, goodness, that's the, the tough one to be quick about. Um, uh, um, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you want to circle back to me. <laughs> Um, no pressure. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I think like the like um, you know we're constantly seeing the extraordinary capacity that we have, right? Like, if there's any one takeaway from a, a project like Planet City, it's this idea that climate change is no longer a technological problem; it's a cultural and a political problem. Um, in many ways, what we did in that project was just we didn't invent some sci-fi technology, but rather we just took existing technologies that maybe have been here for ten or fifteen years, and we just played them out at meaningful scales. We're not waiting for Elon Musk or some you know, genius billionaire to invent something to dig us out of the hole that we've created for ourselves. Um, we have already done that. And really, it's, you know, the hope is that, that you know, the capacity to do the things we need to do are right there in front of us. We could do it tomorrow. Um, the hope is that we do. That gives me hope. Thank you very much. I have two more minutes of information for you. But first, Liam Young.